Great to be together today. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you if you're new to this community. If you're, uh, if you're more than 20 feet away from me, it's called a mustache. It's, it's, I was jealous of Dee and Colin, and so we're in the infant stages of it, and I just wanted to get that out there. What? <laughs> okay. One of the things that we do each week is we open the Bible together. If you would like a Bible, if you need a Bible, um, please raise your hand. Somebody will hand that to you. What we do at our church is we teach through books of the Bible. We try to take our time and not just like get through it, but allow it to get into us. You know what I mean? We're not just here to read a text, but we want the text of Scripture to read us. And so that's what we do when we gather. We open the Word. We open with the Word with open hearts, open minds, asking the Lord to teach us, to show us the way. And so I am very grateful to grab the preaching baton today, and uh, we're going to open up to an amazing letter. It's written to a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, people with some with rich religious heritage and some uh, like recently pagan, you know, and we're talking about Romans and Jews who had every reason to hate one another, but this community of people that God was forming had one thing in common that superseded everything that could otherwise divide them, and it wasn't a thing, it was a person, and his name is Jesus, amen, and he brought this community together and we get the great privilege of, of opening and, and reading this letter that was meant to unify them, to bring them together. And, and Romans is a letter that, among other things, highlights the glories of our salvation in Christ. It's a letter that highlights our desperate need and also the unfathomable grace of God in Christ that he has given us. And so here we are today, Romans chapter 8. This is just a particularly wonderful chapter in all of the Bible. And Paul continues to talk about the realities of our life in the spirit. He's talking about what is possible for a person in a community that is led by the spirit. And so we're going to look in to Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 17. Are you with me? You good? All right, let's read. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. So throughout this letter, Paul is talking about how salvation has to do with God dealing with humanity's sin. 
And the sin is what separates us from God. So Paul will talk a lot often about the law and how the law has revealed and even amplified our rebellion against God. We're told throughout this letter that we are guilty before God and his holiness, but the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to our account. We have been, to use Paul's language, reckoned righteous, but not out of our own doing, but in and through the faithfulness of Jesus. We have been, this is Paul's language, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that language that we hear throughout the letter to Romans is its legal language. And one of the primary metaphors or images in, that we find in the book of Romans is the courtroom. The metaphor that, we're fi- that we often find ourselves in is it's the courtroom with a judge and with witnesses, prosecution, defense attorney. But here this morning in the text that we find ourselves in, the case is not so much a criminal case, but a custody case. The question that we're getting after today in this text is not so much what you have done or haven't done, but the question is, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? We come back into the courtroom today and it's not a criminal case, it's an adoption case. And the key witness in the case is, and here's the punchline, the key witness in the case is the Holy Spirit. And his testimony is this, she belongs to God. He's with us. This is what the Spirit does. This is what the Spirit's intention is, is to testify to that reality. Perhaps we have grown accustomed to think of salvation only sort of in the terms of I was guilty and now I'm not. But Paul thought of our salvation as also being about being adopted into the family of God. So what I'm gonna talk to you today about is the spirit of adoption. The reality that we have been adopted into God's family, to put it into a simple phrase, you belong to God. And so to do that this morning, we're gonna consider what this passage displays for us as two different spirits that are contrasted. One, the spirit of slavery, Paul calls the spirit of slavery, and also the spirit of adoption. And I'll give you the headline right off the bat. If you get nothing else out of this, I want to convince you of this today. And it is this. The Holy Spirit is empowering you to kill the spirit of slavery and claim the spirit of adoption. That is what the Spirit of God is doing, okay? You with me? With me? Okay. Let's talk about that today. Let's talk about the spirit of slavery. Paul begins by talking about this idea of the spirit of slavery, but to put it in a word, what he's getting after is the word flesh. And it's right there. I want you to look into your Bibles right here in verse 12. This is what Paul says right here. He says, we are debtors. Do we have verse 12? There we go. We are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to 
to the flesh. Now, one of the primary things we need to comprehend in Paul's language and his vocabulary as he writes is what he means by the flesh. Thomas Aquinas said that the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three implacable enemies of the soul. And what that means is that our enemy is not just out there, the world, or the devil and his demons, but our enemy is within us. Are you with me? And what Paul is doing is he's, he's kind of drawing that out and telling us how to think about our life. So what does Paul mean by the flesh? Well, we need to define that. The word for flesh in the Greek is the word sarx. The word itself, that word sarx, is, it's kind of a neutral word. It's not necessarily negative, um, but it does have a multiple meanings in the Greek, and it's important for us to think this through. So Dallas Willard, uh, the late philosopher, defined the flesh as natural human powers and capabilities. Now, that's pretty neutral, right? It's actually kind of a good thing if you think of it that way. Flesh is our natural human powers and capabilities. So what does that mean? Well, to, um, to really drive this point home, I'm going to talk to you about Peloton, okay? Because they get it. They absolutely get it, okay? I'll be in, the, in a room in my house, and my wife will be in the next room riding the Peloton. And my wife's instructor is not just a trainer. He's a preacher, Okay? And he's good. Okay? These are the kinds of uh, motivational lines that he just spits out. It's phenomenal. He'll say things like this. If Britney Spears can get through 2007, you can get through this ride. Okay? <laughs> that pre- 2007 was rough for Britney. Okay? That just <laughs> preaches and motivates. I prefer my instructor, Matt, who says, don't think, just ride. Okay? That's all I need. Don't think. Just ride. And that's an appeal to the flesh, right? It's an appeal to our natural abilities. You can actually do this. But the way Dallas described the flesh was not just that it's our natural human powers and capabilities. He went on to say that for the individual away from God, the flesh becomes in practice simply the body. Another way to put it is our carnal desires. This led Eugene Peterson, the late pastor and author, to write that the flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced into our appetites and instincts. And so your trainer, your Peloton instructor, is probably right. You can get through this ride relying on your flesh. You don't even need to pray sometimes, right? You can do this. But away from God, our natural instincts and desires and appetites are not nearly as neutral as we'd like to think they are. Are you with me? It's not nearly as trustworthy as our instructors would tell us that they are. Just pause for a moment, and I want you just to imagine if you followed every instinct that you ever had. Yikes, right? Like, I'm, I'm speaking personally. Maybe you're just super well-intentioned. I, in fact, am not. So the truth is, related to the flesh, you can accomplish a lot with your flesh, but not the righteousness of God. In fact, Paul will tell us that when we are ruled by our appetites and desires and instincts, we are slaves. 
And that's what he calls it here, the spirit of slavery. Slavery is a regular metaphor in both the Old and the New Testament for the people of God. In the Old Testament, the crucial kind of apex moment in the whole story is when God brings Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And in the New Testament, even Jesus himself says that he has come to free his people from the slavery that they experience in bondage to an even greater master than Pharaoh, which is sin and death. This is the message of the gospel is being brought out of slavery and into something else. Slavery is just, it really, it's, it's, it's a challenging metaphor to use even in the scriptures. We see it in the scriptures, but it's, it's something we almost wish wasn't there. I mean, our, it's no secret that our own countries and our, and our history, just the grotesque, depraved realities of our complicit, complicitness with gross evils of slavery is even present in our minds. We know that that language, though, is used by God himself and used by the authors of Scripture to remind us how evil our world is and how evil our own hearts are so that he can remind us of how great the redemption we have experienced in Christ actually is. So slavery in the first century in Rome culture was incredibly common. In fact, a significant portion of the church community that Paul writes to were probably slaves. And slavery in the first century was a little bit different than the often race or ethnic-based slavery that we see in our world Oftentimes, slavery was, in first century, what we call debt-based slavery. Does that make sense? So if you were indebted to someone, you could become what's called an indentured servant and work off your debt, working under this person until you'd paid it in full. And I'm not advocating for that. It was a horrible and, and often abused way of getting things done but it was very, very common in that time. And the Greek word that's used for that was the word doulos. And the idea was that when you're indebted to someone, you would be enslaved to them. And I want you to notice back in our text that this is the way that Paul starts his argument here for about who we are in Christ. He says, we are not debtors to the flesh. What he's saying is we are not indebted to the corrupt, disordered passions that every one of us feels. He says you aren't indebted to the flesh or those desires or instincts if, and this is a big if, if you are led by the Spirit, which we'll talk about in just a minute. See what Paul's doing here? He's beginning his sort of this text by reminding his audience of who they are. He says, you have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. And that idea, that reality, is very important for us in our modern age. And here's why. It stands in contrast with the spirit of our age, which is constantly appealing to our flesh and desires. Here's some of the mantras that we hear often. Maybe we reject them in our minds, but maybe we believe them in our hearts. Things like this. The heart wants what it wants. You ever heard that one? 
How about this one? Follow your heart and read into that all your desires, every appetite. One of the, one of the most easy to catch along you know, taglines is this, you do you, i.e. like whatever you want, you, you do you. Be true to yourself. Have you ever heard that one? Interestingly, in the, in the scriptures, the flesh and the self are somewhat synonymous. So you can just think about Jesus, what he would say to his followers. If anyone would follow me, he or she must, what, deny yourself and take up your cross. Another mantra that we hear all the time is live your truth, which comes from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, above all, to thine own self be true, right? Have you heard that? Interestingly, I didn't make this up. This was pointed out to me. That phrase, to thine own self be true, is said by the fool, Polonius, in the play. And yet, it is the mantra of our age. So as Christians, maybe we reject the mantras of the world, but how often, even even as followers of Jesus, do we consider ourselves, though, to be slaves to our appetites and instincts? Perhaps the dating couple who says, we can't not sleep together. That's crazy. Or perhaps at the end of a long week, a follower of Jesus would say, I've I've got to take something, drink something, smoke something, anything to take the edge off. Or how about many of us who struggled to say, Thing and say things like, well, I just, I had to go to that website. I had to look at it. Paul is telling us something that is profound. He's saying, you are not a slave to that instinct and desire and that appetite, no matter how strong it is. He describes it later in our text as the spirit of fear which is a horrible master, to live as if every instinct that you feel that you must step into it. I know that's intense. So let me just bring the intensity down for a second, okay? I've got a pretty full house. My wife and I are three kids. They're wonderful. I love all of them, especially the girl. And uh, (laughs) we have two pets, which is a terrible idea. That's where I'm going with this. We have a golden retriever named Daisy. She's great. Real dumb. Like, real dumb. You know when people say, like, my dog is just so smart. I'll never say that. I will never say that. That would be a lie, okay? So we've got Daisy. She's a golden retriever, which you may know are bred to be hunting dogs. I've heard it's fairly instinctual for them to do that. And um, so months ago, my daughter says, I really want a bunny. And I was like, that's a hard no. That's a quick no. And then three days later, we had a bunny. Okay, so (laughs) there's a lot of respect for me. And um, my thinking on this was that bunnies are an animal of prey. And we already have a hunting dog, okay? That's not hard to put together. So anyways, we have Cookie the bunny, super cute. And sure enough, within 10 seconds, all of Daisy's hunting instincts kicked in. 
She went from the dumbest dog I've ever known to just like constantly staring at the bunny. And I was like, this isn't gonna go well. So one time, this recently, and this is not, I'm not making the story up. I'm sitting with my daughter Finley at the table. We are just having a ball. We're laughing. It's like right after dinner. We're having a great conversation. She's very funny. I think I'm funny. We just totally get each other's sense of humor. We're sitting there, and, I, and we look to our right, and through the glass um, slider, we see our dog Daisy holding by the back, the soft part of the back of Cookie's neck, holding Cookie in her mouth. And time froze. And we're just sitting there looking at it. And Daisy has this look on her face that's just like, you're welcome. You know, she's like, this is, this is what I was made to do. I don't know why you brought this imposter into our house. I found him. He's mine, and I'm giving him to you. I'm not kidding you. My daughter and I looked at each other at the exact same time. And we were like, ah! Like, it was, it was total chaos. We got Cookie out of Daisy's mouth. Daisy was like, I don't know why you're mad. This is what we do. And, and Cookie was crippled for the next two days, like literally couldn't, I know that got real serious there, like Cookie couldn't walk for two days and now he's fine, he's fine now. I think it was the spirit of fear. He literally, I, that is a thing actually for bunnies and he couldn't walk for a couple days and there's just a ton of tension in our household related to the animals that live there. And, um, but I kept thinking about Daisy in that moment, just like, well, this is what I do, okay? This is what I do, and for those of us who are in Christ, sometimes we're confronted with our own appetites and instincts, our carnal desires, and our response oftentimes after we give in to those is like, well, this is what I do, right? You ever been there? This is what I do. And Paul is on a mission in this text to squelch that lie that you are a slave to your desires. That's what he's getting after in this text. He has a plan. God has a plan for what to do about that. And we're gonna see it right here in verse 13. I want you to look in on this. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That word is not just future, it's also present. If you live according to the flesh, you're dying. But, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit of God's intent is to put to death and to kill the spirit of fear that is in all of us, the spirit of slavery that is in us. The Spirit's whisper to us, and I would argue to you this morning, is I'm going to kill that. And I know that's strong language, but that is the language of the text itself. This is where the Christian doctrine of mortification comes from. Have you heard of it? Mortification is also a 90s Christian heavy metal band from Australia. Very, very unknown band, but <laughs> phenomenal. Colin knows. Where's he at? Anyways. That word put to death is the Greek word thanatoo, which means death or oblivion. Um, kids think Thanos from the Marvel movies. Are you right? I mean, that's like a Mike self-reference right there, isn't it? Okay, it's the idea of oblivion, of killing something. Paul uses that language. It's incredibly strong. 
So the question that we have to think about is how does the Holy Spirit help us to kill what he calls the deeds of the flesh? I wanna talk about that for a little bit today and I wanna say a couple things before we get into that. This is a complex conversation about how the Spirit comes alongside us to kill the deeds of the flesh. Certainly we could talk about the spiritual disciplines of fasting and silence and Sabbath and confession and about how those deeds when done in devotion unto God, how the Holy Spirit could come alongside us and begin to kill some of the appetites that often own us. Do you know what I mean by that? That's, we could talk about that, and certainly it is not lost on me that finding freedom from addiction is a long process dealing with traumas that we've experienced, and I'm not trying to kind of present some sort of like easy, quick fix for all of those things. And I don't want to provide a quick fix for it because the scriptures don't really do that. They simply say this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. It doesn't give us a plan for how to do that, but it does tell us a starting place to walk in the freedom that is actually ours in Christ. Don't you want to know what that is? It's this. The Holy Spirit kills the spirit of slavery by teaching us to claim the spirit of adoption. That's how this actually happens. The Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit, his work is to remind your spirit, the deepest part of you, that you belong to God and that that is the greatest truth about you. And that is how he begins to kill the destructive desires that rise up within us so often. He tells us this in verses 14 to 15. Just read along with me. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now the language there. It's very specific. Perhaps you notice that it is said that those led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Why didn't it say sons and daughters of God? And we, it also tells us that we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons. And those words are used intentionally by Paul, not because he's a chauvinist, but because he's using language to help bring a community of people together in their understanding of who they are in God. The language of salvation, can we just nerd out for a second, okay? Just permission. I'm going to do it anyways, but permission, okay. The language of salvation as adoption is language that Paul used that he got from Roman law, okay? In the Roman society that these believers lived in, there was a process called adoptio in which an adoptee could shift from being under the authority of his own family to being under the authority of a new father and his household. Often the adoptee would be an adult male. So what sometimes would happen in this case was that the adopted son could become the sole heir to all of the inheritance of the benevolent father, the adopter. The adopted son could be treated as if he were the firstborn in the family with all the estate, with all the inheritance placed in his name. Now, all of this was not based on birth order. It wasn't based on kind of like blood relationship. 
It was based on the benevolence of the Father. You with me? Paul draws from that as he begins to tell this community who they are. He takes this idea from Roman law. He says, I'm I'm, I'm pressing in on who you are. He uses that language, and then he also uses the phrase sons of God. He says, you are all, if you're led by the Spirit, you are sons of God, which was a phrase that was very common for the people of Israel. In fact, in the Exodus story, God instructs Moses in Exodus 4.22, you can read this at a different time, he instructs Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him this, Israel is my firstborn son. And so Paul, you're tracking with me? So Paul takes these two metaphors that were precious and important in both of the different cultures that he's interacting with, and he uses them to unify his church by telling them, this is who you are. This is how God has treated you. So this is Paul the pastor, and he loves this people, this community, and he recognizes that many things are fracturing their relationships, and he says, I'm gonna bring you into this reality. You are all adopted as sons by God himself. He says, I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna press that on your heart. Paul is constantly doing this. You don't have to turn there, but I am gonna turn there. Paul does this in the book of Galatians. In chapter three, verse 26, listen to his language here about how he unifies a community by telling them who they are and what their identity is. In chapter three of Galatians, verse 26, Paul says this, for in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He goes on to say this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul there is not sort of obliterating the realities that there are men and women or obliterating the realities that some are Jew and some are Greek and that some are wealthy and that some are poor, that some are slave or some are free. Paul is saying all of the things that separated you from one another don't matter anymore for you are one in Christ. So Paul is not just sort of uplifting the individual here. He's forming a community of faith. The church, when it gathers, is not just like a club. It's maybe something more like an adoption support group of men and women, boys and girls who are in Christ and that is the most important thing about them. But it is so hard to unlearn the past and to simply come home, isn't it? Because that's, that's what we're dealing with in this text. It's hard to unlearn our old patterns and find security in our new family. But that's what God invites us into. And that's what he calls us into. The Spirit's whisper to each one of us today is you belong to me. We started this, this conversation kind of around the metaphor of a custody case, right? And 
the reality of that case is that the case is closed. If you are in Christ, you belong to God forever. But this is, this is what the evil one wants to do. He wants to bury you in court. He has no case, right? He has no claim on your life. But what he wants to do is sort of just draw you back into the courtroom and say, are you, are you, are you really God's? Do you really belong to him? And that's, that's the work of spiritual formation in our life is to listen to the Holy Spirit say, we're not going back into the courtroom. In fact, we're coming home. The Spirit himself, it says this in verse 16 in our text. You have to see this. The Spirit himself, and this is not an impersonal force or premonition, this is God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, the deepest part of us, that we are children of God, that we belong to him. Do you believe that? Are you beginning to believe that more and more? I think we can get so fixated on our sin, on the deeds of the flesh. This is all Paul's language here. We can get so fixated on that. And, and I think that the starting place that God would wanna bring us to, again, is not what we've done, but who we are, whose we are. You belong to God forever. That is the truth. Let's read on. Verse 17. Every one of us, children of God, if we are in Christ. Verse 17 says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's not just that you have an inheritance, or it's not just that you have been redeemed, but everything that belongs to Christ belongs to you. That's the promise. A co-heir with Christ, the true firstborn. What happened to Jesus will in fact happen to you. We talked about this last week, his resurrected body, when he appeared to his, to his disciples perfected body, that's gonna happen to you. That's your inheritance. We're, yes, adopted sons, but even more, we are royalty. And the promise is that we will rule and reign with God in Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the promise of God that he has given to us, that he has sealed in Christ. And we need to start to claim it. We need to start to walk in it. We need to remind each other of it. That's not who you are. This is who you are. You're not enslaved to that. You belong to God. And that's how God forms his community when we speak reality into each other's lives. 
And that's hard, isn't it? That takes a long time. I think that's why, they, like this is the end of the passage and these are the things that like when you preach, you just wanna skip over, but you can't, right? Well, how does it end? Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is in verse 17. And I, I feel like this was a whoops, but he actually meant it when he said this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This process of claiming your adoption. And this process where the Holy Spirit works in you to kill off that spirit of slavery. Here's what I think one of the things Paul is saying. That can feel like suffering, can't it? When we say no to our fleshy desires and appetites and instincts, when we say no to that, doesn't it sometimes feel like suffering? When we have the opportunity to share like a cutting remark with someone who's wronged us and we say no to that, doesn't that feel like suffering at times? When our appetites feel so strong within us that we, we just don't even know how we could possibly not give in that's suffering, isn't it? Sometimes we only think of suffering in the scriptures here as like, I don't know, being persecuted for our faith. But the key thing that Paul brings us into as he ends this text, this part of the text, is that whatever suffering we experience, we suffer with Jesus, right? That's what it says. It says we suffer with him. We suffer with Jesus knowing that there's a long process going on within us by the Spirit to constantly remind us of who we are and constantly remind us of who we were so that we can live as the family of God. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are together. God's children adopted. We have an inheritance we have a freedom. We have a family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. What a gift it is to be saved by you. How powerful your redemption is in our life. May we never forget, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the truth of who we are. We belong to you, to you alone. I wanna pray, Lord, this morning for those in this room, maybe those watching online, who have come to believe that they're still slaves Spirit of God, we pray, kill that lie. We pray you'd whisper our identity into our hearts that we may walk as free, free sons and daughters. May it be so, we pray.
In your name, amen.